welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Kaylee Hartigan, and Kaylee has 16 plus years of experience in healthcare, including C-suite positions in health tech companies like Zava and Health Hero, as well as positions in the Department of Health, the NHS, the World Health Organization, and Private Equity Advisory. She's the founder and CEO of Fertility Mapper, which is revolutionizing fertility services through data, starting with the UK's first community-rated and reviewed index of fertility clinics. Kaylee, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Uh, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Kelly? Uh, London. Very nice. Are you at home? Are you in the office? Do you have an office yet for the new gig? No, so I work from home, which I hate. Um, <laughs> and then I also have, I have a space in uh, a place called the Albright, which is a kind of members club for oh, female nice. founders. Oh, yeah. very nice. Cool. Well, Kaylee, as I say, it's absolutely pleasure to have you on. Really looking forward to to getting into it. You've got, as I said in that intro there, like, and when we talked about it just off 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 air, didn't we? Like, a really varied experience in healthcare, which actually is quite rare to have seen things from inside a health tech company, the C suite, private equity, Department of Health, World Health Organization. Like, it's it, like obviously that's policy versus investment. It's a super interesting background, honestly, and. Yeah, I, I think having seen the world from so many different, or this health tech world anyway, from so many different vantage points, I'm hoping, no pressure, this is going to be an incredibly interesting conversation. <laughs> tell us the story. Tell us tell us the long version. Tell us um, how this journey started for you, How, why healthcare even initially, um, and, and take us through all of those different roles. How did you, how and why did you take the journey and the route that you have done to becoming a health tech entrepreneur? Yeah, well, I'm kind of, where do you start that? Where do you start? I guess a bit like probably many of the people you interview on this podcast who want to be a doctor when they're younger, the kind of story actually starts really quite early. It becomes like something you get into when you're very young. Mm. Um, So the original plan was that I was going to do medicine. I think from like age 15, I was somehow volunteering in A&E and in care homes and doing all the good work um, that you do. Um, and, and actually really loved, especially I worked in a care home for people with dementia um, and had, it was genuinely a wonderful thing to be doing, um, but also kind of with this plan to, to go to med school. And I am extremely dyslexic, like it, on the spectrum of dyslexia down the hard extreme end um, and didn't get into medical school. Um, and so like lots of people who don't, obviously it's a highly competitive process. I kind of thought, what will I do now? Um, and I found a course at UCL called the biology of fertility and embryo development. And for me, the kind of the original plan was I would go and do that and then do medicine as a kind of post-med or post, um, my BSc. Um, and this kind of course seems super exciting and really interesting because a lot of the undergrad science degrees that you can do before going into, um, into medicine and without in any way meaning to undermine uh, people who do biomed, there's quite a lot of like patting clear fluids into other clear fluids and then seeing if they change color. Um, and so whereas with the biology of fertility and embryo development, like pretty early on, we were into kind of dissecting chick embryos and taking bits of forebrain and implanting them into quails. And it was also a very Frankenstein. Anyway, um, at, <laughs> at the young age, that seems like a kind of interesting thing to be doing. It also covered lots of stuff around evolution and all the usual things that you would expect to do. So that was really my kind of first time where I started to learn about this this thing called embryology, um, which obviously now cycled back to many, many, many years later. Um, but that's that's kind of where it started. And then after studying um, that at UCL, the plan was to do medicine, but I took a year out and ended up working for the Undersecretary of State for International Development. Um, so it differed um, on like a healthcare portfolio, basically. And that was really when I got hooked on population-based health. And so didn't go back to medicine as I had intended to do um, and instead ended up kind of working there for a year before heading out to Burma to work with the World Health Organization in the aftermath of a cyclone. So setting up 
hospitals, kind of mapping basically where various bits of medication were relative to disease outbreaks um, and all that good stuff. And so kind of having got then on this population health kind of track, um, and as, as anyone who's kind of worked in the WHO will know, you kind of really need to try and get a PhD. Like everyone seems to have at least one. And so I came back to the UK um, and did a master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine um, and the London School of Economics focused on health financing. And so this, I guess, is where my like, interest in public health or population health really started to get quite specific. Um, and so what I really got into at that point was how do you fund access to high quality healthcare services? And so really looking at different models of how you fund healthcare across, you know, Europe versus the US, for example, as being a really kind of obvious statement, but um, getting into the nitty gritty of funding healthcare services. Um, and so I, from there, moved into the Department of Health um, on the far stream um, and did a whole number of roles. So a really great piece of work with a lady who I don't know if she still remembers me now, but a lady called Geraldine Strathody, who was working in the mental health space. Um, and we were working on how to improve access to community care. So at that time, a lot of mental health services were really down the higher acuity spectrum. Um, and there was, there was very little funding for anything in the community space. So we were working basically on how do you uh, improve access to community care and mental health. And subsequently, I'm really excited to see, obviously, the kind of government funded system has stepped up in mental health, but also there's this amazing world of innovation that happens and also lots of um, different types of services available um, in the community. So that that was pretty brilliant. And then I also did things like working on adult social care financing. So for the geeks listening to this podcast who anybody else might not fall asleep, I worked on something called a Section 75 which was where we were moving money from the NHS into adult social care via the NHS. So adult social care is funded, obviously, by the government directly into local authorities. Um, and this is around 2010, before all these things like the Better Care Fund existed. Um, it was basically the precursor to that. So how do we put more money into the NHS to support collaboration at a local level? So yeah, so these are the kind of things I ended up working on in the Department of Health. And through both of those actually kind of areas, I suddenly got quite a lot of exposure to the private sector. So um, care homes, for example, are mostly private um, in the UK and typically backed or typically owned by private equity investors. Um, and that's actually similar if you look at mental health. A lot of the mental health providers providing both private and NHS services were also backed by private equity investors. And this is kind of around the time that I just have been part of the team that had helped set up NHS England. I moved from the department over to NHS England. I think we went from a team of 30 of us to thousands in 18 months. And anyone who lived through that process will know that was probably too quick. And so we moved over. NHS England was established. And then there was this sort of kind of huge push for tech and innovation. And so we were doing things like setting up teams that were pump priming, tech innovation in local areas. Um, so I worked in South Somerset um, for a while um, as part of like the NHS England team, but kind of spending time traveling down there to set up um, new hubs of innovation. Anyway, through all of this, essentially, suddenly I realized there's this thing called the private sector and I don't know anything about it. So uh, I took a massive leap. A lot of my colleagues raised some eyebrows and I moved over into the private equity world where I founded the European subsidiary of a US business called the Marwood Group. And the business was essentially set up to advise large cap private equity investors on healthcare investments across Europe, focusing on kind of funding and regulation and reimbursement and how that would impact their business models. Um, and so I grew that from a kind of, I guess, team of me in a very small office with hardly any windows um, to a small team um, working on large pan-European um, transactions. So that was kind of the next phase. Um, and I ended up doing that for several years. Um, really controversially enjoyed it. It was great. Um, it was a, it was extremely hard. Um, it, is, it is very hard in retrospect 
I think naivety was quite helpful. Um, but it was very hard to move from, I guess, working in essentially the Department of Health or NHS England over into, uh, you know, a big New York headquartered private equity finance world. So it's very different. It's a huge transition. But I met some really great people. I worked on incredible projects and really had the opportunity to be helpful and kind of set out, actually, if you're investing into healthcare, this is this is really what it means. Like, this is the kind of regulatory impact. This is the reimbursement impact. Um, and, you know, your, your kind of business models are operating, with, operating within that context. So it's great that you need to know and understand how that works as part of your kind of investment process. So it was a really, really exciting time. And I particularly enjoyed kind of picking and training the team. And so the type of people that I hired into um, the Marwa Group were people that had worked in the NHS and in the Department of Health or in the European Commission or wherever they might have been working. So they were typically kind of government healthcare-backed people being put in a room with finance people. Um, and so there was this like brilliant thing where you kind of got to, to pick the team, but also train them in a whole new way of working and a whole new industry, um, which was, from my perspective was extremely, extremely rewarding. So love that role, it was great. But after some time, I actually really missed being closer to patients, which is, I guess, where I had started. Um, and so as much as it was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it intellectually, um, I, I kind of missed doing something slightly closer to impact. So that's when I took the slightly terrifying move again with some naivety <laughs> and moved into health tech um, where I deliberately found a business that was exposed to Google and kind of direct consumer acquisition uh, and became the chief commercial officer at Zava. And Zava was, I joined just after the series A as part of the senior team. Um, and was responsible for kind of all channels. So the marketing team, the commercial teams in each of the market, um, for people who don't know, um, it's a direct consumer, essentially access to doctor and prescribing um, across across Europe. So Germany, France, the UK and Ireland. And so we run that team for several years, including building big relationships with big um, pharmacy chains like Superdrug, Shop Apoteca um, in Germany and Asda. Um, and then I moved over to... Join Health Hero, where I have just left. Um, so my last day was the 31st of December. And at Health Hero, essentially, I was working on as the number two, so running strategy into operations, including kind of setting business plans, working on the like finances, the budgets for the year, uh, and then making sure that that translated into kind of action and output um, across all of the markets in Europe. There's a few things that I want to mention and talk about with you. Where that story ends is is quite interesting to me because it's funny that I think that's quite a desirable place to be, you know, number two in a big European scaling health tech company, or even if you take that stage before of, of you know, when you got into that or even at Zava and Series A and people wanting to be in these chief something officer roles of health tech companies. As I say, it's an incredibly desirable place to be. However, those opportunities are not available to everybody. And I think it's important that people realize that there are people like yourself that they're going to be going up against when they, when they want to shoot for that. And actually to get the experience that you had is the first step of that, because the experience that you've put together it, it hits me as pretty practical. It's incredibly practical for running a business in healthcare because you've pieced together health knowledge, take your degree, the biology, fertility, and embryo development, where you've looked at embryology, you've looked at evolution, you've looked at population-based health as well, and you've you've but you've then practically gone and applied stuff, World Health Organization, Burma, etc. But I think this next bit is incredibly key. When people ask me about value in a health tech company, what, what, how do I get a, a C-suite role in a health tech company? How do I go and be a director? I'm going to think finance. Now, you've lent into this in a big way because knowing and learning and appreciating and understanding how money moves in healthcare is critical to impact. Not critical to making more money, it is, but I'm not going to talk about that for now. 
let's actually just focus on the impact you want to make personally, the businesses that are in healthcare, to know and actually understand money, the way it moves, what it's attached to, regulatory, reimbursement, two words that you used. It's only through that depth of knowledge that the title chief commercial officer, I think, even becomes relevant because only through the knowledge that you've gained are you going to really understand what that business can do commercially and potentially and what effects certain market positions are going to have and movements and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a really, really, really important deliberate point. Another word that you used about certain career moves, which I really like, deliberate moves to do certain things. And I think from a private equity perspective, and we can talk about what that means for, for people that might not know, but to know it at that level, as well as to know it at the Series A startup level, to know it at both, to know that journey that that startup's going to have to take, you've got that view and that vision as well, and that understanding, as I've said. Um, I, th- I, th- I thought controversially enjoying it is, is an interesting phrase, but it's a phrase that you know I, I'm not not expecting just because I also think it's it's not easy to talk about health and finance together. Like it really isn't. It's it's really not easy, particularly amongst clinicians and things like that, when you start talking about private equity and money and 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 stuff and how that works in healthcare. You might think that that's reserved purely for a US model. You know, we've got an NHS, a government funded, blah blah blah. But actually, to make impact, you called it out. There's government, there's innovation, there's community, there's all of those things that have to come together and actually what drives those things, even policy potentially and somewhat, is finance. And so I really like your background. I, re- I, th- I think it's so fascinating. And I think my, my, my question here is how deliberate was it? Did you have an end goal in mind? Because by the way, when you piece all this together and then you think, well, you're going to spot a, a gap in the market and start a business, well, that's you know, that, that, that's, that's dangerous at this point because you've got all the information. Like, goodness me, like your understanding of the system is so great that whatever business you start with, this knowledge has to be one of incredibly high value, in my opinion. But yeah, how deliberate was it to piece all this together? Did you have entrepreneurship in mind? Did you have this end goal in mind? Did you piece this information together out of your own interest? Was it that you were looking to increase your optionality career-wise? Talk to me about those career decisions. So I reflect on this. I don't actually, I've never talked to anyone about this before, but so the way I am dyslexic, um, and it might be different for everyone else because I've generally never spoken to anyone, is I kind of see things as I'm like a real system thinker. I see in like networks and structures. And so when I was thinking about, okay, I want to go into more of a population health role rather than going into more of a clinical role, I was like, okay, what is the glue how does like how do I find the network thing? Because that's kind of the way my brain works. And so actually, if, if finance is quite in the context of healthcare, can be quite a loaded term because it's linked to things like profit and yeah. so on. But actually, it's just it's just something within a healthcare system that that means that something happens, right? You put money in, there's activity, there's an output. Um, and so actually, when I was looking at kind of what masters to study health financing felt really like an interesting option because basically it's like the web it's the glue that holds all of the different parts of the healthcare system together because you've got you've got primary care secondary care community services mental health physical health like the whole web of things comes together to create kind of pathway or service that a patient experience all of that is tied together through funding and really close closely linked to that incentives <laughs> and so I actually found it really interesting when you when we were talking earlier I can't remember if it was on the recording or before when we were when we were chatting which was about if you've experienced lots of different backgrounds mm-hmm. it means you can kind of understand people differently because you've been in their shoes um and I think the incentive thing is really kind of an important point to that. So if I look at where I am in my career now, the funding thing was super useful for understanding the structure of the web of stuff. And actually having then been in different bits of that web 
I've worked with lots of different types of people, which means that I also understand their incentives, which is much more, you know, there's there's hard incentives and there's soft incentives. And you can put as many hard incentives in place as you want, but often <laughs> it's the soft things that make the difference. And so I think for me, like, actually, was it, was it deliberate when I decided to do health financing? Sort of no. I just kind of went with what worked best for my brain and then I sort of followed the string or followed, you know, the breadcrumbs or whatever. Um, and it sort of led me to a lot of them, the subsequent decisions that I ended up mm. making. For those people that don't know, what is private equity? They're basically companies that raise money from bigger financial institutions like pension funds and then they use that money to invest in businesses with the intention of making that business grow essentially um, and so typically unlike when you look at things like venture that's through acquisition rather than what's called organic growth um, and so there are different types of private equity funds as kind of like small funds mid-market funds and then large cap global private equity funds where the, their fund is you know 14 billion 15 billion dollars or euros. And so what typically happens is you'll have a business, that business is normally backed by a founder, uh, it's kind of called a more of a like a lifestyle business or so someone that's set up a clinic or something. Um, and they want to retire. So they sell the clinic, a private equity fund might buy that clinic, and then they might buy three or four other clinics that do similar things, and then stick them together and create synergies across yep. those businesses. So like in payments, in accounting, yeah. in perhaps staff. And so that's, that's, and then they kind of grow it. They normally hold on to those companies for three to five years, depending on the market. And then they sell it and a bigger private equity company buys it. So that's kind of what private equity does. That knowledge is obviously factored. Well, I say obviously it might not have done, but that's factored in to your next move and your next step into entrepreneurship i suppose the knowledge of how this stuff happens maybe when you think about a potential exit for yourself but obviously you're going right back now to uh the biology of fertility and embryo development almost um where this all started for you um so talk to me about the entrepreneurship stage of your journey so the next phase yeah so it's it's um it's actually really interesting what you said. If you take that knowledge and you've worked within the healthcare system or been part of the, the web of the healthcare system, you can then go and work in any bit of healthcare and build a business in it. Um, and that, you know, that was some, I guess there's, there's two parts this entrepreneurship journey. So yes, there's like the logical bit. Um, and if you've read, um, I can't remember what publication it was in, but the lady who set up Maven, which is a really big women's healthcare clinic in the US, she kind of talks about picking the biggest market. So it gives you space to pivot within that market. And I do, like, I agree. I, but I think there's kind of two parts for me. So, so one is picking a big market where you can have huge scale company, essentially. The second bit is then essentially more of the emotional bit like do you like can you see there's a problem you want to fix and do you want to fix it and I think my experience so far um obviously working I haven't been the founder of the previous businesses but been very close to the founders of those businesses and been part of that journey is grit you need a lot of grit like the startup world is not this like wonderful shiny thing all of the time and it's amazing and I'm super excited to be starting my own journey, but also I am not naive to the fact that it's going to be a lot of hard work. And so the thing that kind of gets you through that is, yes, pick the big market, which I believe fertility is, and we can get into that in a moment if you want. But also, do you want, like, do you really want to do it? Like, do you, do you have a passion for the topic that you're getting involved in? Because, you know, when when the, when you're in the valley of death, as one of the investors described it to me, uh, that will be the thing that kind of gets you gets you out the other side. And so it's kind of both both parts of that. And I think just to also say, like, this is a project I've had in me for many many years, um, and I uh, have been kind of working on it slowly and quietly for a while. And I've been speaking to to people who've been through fertility treatment for probably two years now 
Um, and when you've when you've worked a like sixty hour week and flown between Germany and Paris and back, and mm. you're doing a really big job, which was what I was doing at Health Hero, and then you get up on a Saturday morning and it's eight a.m. and you're interviewing people back to back like the reason you do that is because you really care like you really have to care at that point otherwise you're just like do you know what <laughs> I've had a very long week <laughs> I'm extremely tired I'm gonna have a lion and then go to the gym um and so I think the passion is like you know the passion to solve the problem is a super important piece yeah and I definitely want to dig into that a bit more as to the exact problem you want to solve but the final thing I just want to say before we do about your background that's led you to this point is becoming informed and removing that element of naivety of as to what you're actually going into you know it's funny there's a, there's a a narrative that i hear from founders a lot which is which is if i'd known what it was actually going to be like i probably wouldn't have done it and that's interesting to me because I don't believe I don't believe them a lot of the time because I do think that for entrepreneurs the benefits always tend to outweigh whether your business is being successful or not by the way I think if you are an entrepreneur at heart and you might have been born it or become it I'm still a believer that that both are possible I I do I do think that the benefits outweigh the negatives even if the business is not being successful because of the the elements of being your own boss and, and all the rest of it if, if you are a true entrepreneur. But the reason that I think it's interesting that you said that is because you've you've done it and you've seen it from a very practical perspective at Zava being in its Series A and then the growth of Health Hero and being in charge of all that. You've seen the whole journey and what that is going to be for your life. And the closest I've got to it, I suppose, is interviewing people on this podcast. And before I started somex and and what we're doing now like speaking to so many entrepreneurs about good habits and what's worked for them and their struggles and what's worked and what hasn't and you know all this stuff is what i've accumulated from here so i've all i've to some extent been aware of what the good practices are and what might lie ahead and and that kind of thing but i've not lived it and it is very different when you're living it to actually be experiencing those emotions and you can do your absolute best to transcend and observe yourself having those emotions which we're told to do depending on which uh therapy you subscribe to but you can try your absolute best <laughs> but sometimes you can just be overwhelmed by those emotions and they can lead to certain behaviors and put you in a worse spot and all the rest of it the benefit of experience though allows you to observe a lot more than to actually act on uh, i do find and so yeah, it's just another part of your journey that I think just really aligns nicely to to what being a, um, I was going to use the word mature, that's not the right word, but informed entrepreneur and wise almost entrepreneur of, of having having genuinely seen and felt a lot of those experiences, I think I think is, is so great. And I, and I do encourage anybody that wants to start their own businesses to get as close as possible to a founder, a CEO, someone on the C-suite that, that's interacting with a founder, like get as close as you possibly can and and learn and observe that way because you you just you just learn by doing, right? And I think that's that's definitely been a factor of your journey that you've actively put yourself in these positions to to be very practical in your learning. Um but back to that passion and motivation. So of the many problems that you could solve in this space in fertility what is your motivation what is going to get you up on that saturday no matter how tired you are what is that activity what is that purpose what is that goal what are what are you now going to start fighting for yes yeah, so there's a really interesting i don't know how to describe it but I think it started, I worked on this thing, again, was super geeky in, in policy land called choice and competition policy with what was then called Monitor, one of the oh, regulators, yes. uh, yeah, um, and NHS England, which was about how do you support patients to have a choice of doctor, basically, um, uh, within the NHS. And if you look at a lot of other healthcare systems, the German healthcare system, which I, I really have worked within it, on the outside of it, but like in close proximity to it um, for kind of 
four years now, Zava is a, um, a Hamburg headquartered business, um, and they have free choice of clinician, as is true actually in France. So they don't have the you go to the GP and then you're funneled into whatever your next action is. Um, you 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 can go to any GP you want um, and be reimbursed for that consultation. And in some, most cases, you can also go into certain types of secondary care directly without going through the primary care physician to get there. And so there's this kind of sense for me about about choice and the role of choice in the individual's ability to improve their experience um, of their service. And so that was kind of something I worked on a very long time ago. And very strangely, because basically fertility is predominantly an out-of-pocket pay market. So if you look at the 2019 figures in the UK, it's around 65% of cycles are funded out-of-pocket um, and with the rest picked up by the NHS. Um, if you look at, it's difficult because it was a COVID year, that's kind of up to 73% in the COVID year, in the COVID years. Um, and it's it's really, it's a kind of, it's a massively growing market um, with shrinking reimbursement, which means that you have a number of people, a very large number of people who, for the first time, are paying for their healthcare. And so there's this kind of whole thing that starts to happen around the fertility market space where that person has agency and choice, but no power. Um, and actually, the motivating thing for me is how do you support people going through that process to have to be to be empowered or to have the control over that process um, and not be kind of subject to it, if that makes sense. Um, and that that kind of manifests in several ways. So in an industry that is predominantly backed by private investors, that is an out-of-pocket industry where clinicians in, in some cases and clinics in every case are financed on activity-based payments. Um, there's a whole, like we kind of talked earlier about this idea of incentives. There's this whole kind of challenge with the way that the incentive structure is set up in that market if the consumer doesn't have power over their experience and essentially what they're paying and what's going on. And so for me, the kind of passion weirdly sits at this, again, like super geeky interface of funding and incentives. Whereas I think a lot of people, when they talk about setting up a fertility business, they are very focused on the experience and, and like wrapping things around to support people with that in that experience. Actually, what I'm getting to is that is a hundred percent necessary, but let's first just break it because right now it's not working and it's not working because the consumer kind of has choice but no information. <laughs> um, and therefore they're kind of, they're operating in a very vulnerable space. Um, and in some cases, unfortunately are really being taken advantage of. And so that, that kind of for me is, why I've started there and I've seen and I've heard the impact of that um, on, on people, on couples, on individuals. Um, and it, it, it's really hard. So that's kind of my focus for now. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go into this a bit because you're absolutely right in a model where you know, let's let's talk hypotheticals that everybody is okay with paying for healthcare. Healthcare is a service. If everyone's okay paying for it, everyone pays for it in this imaginary country. But everyone has free choice. Everyone has control. Over time, those who develop the best experience, those who develop the best service, those who have the most success, those who treat people nicely and right will be the ones that attract all the business over time. The ones who don't go and it's a pure sort of jungle of capitalism and the strongest survive standards go up, everyone's a winner. That isn't the situation that we have, as you say. It's very mixed. It's a bit all over the place. That also isn't good for many reasons. The prices will go up for the good service. It will price people out. Um, because again, in the jungle of capitalism, that's what will happen, and and greed and all that. So there's 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 lots of there's lots of stuff that goes along with this that is messy. But I think important that we can talk about this with someone like yourself that that knows so much of the finance. So a lot of your background, a lot of your 
career has been about improving access. That's been an incredibly consistent part of, of what you wanted to achieve clearly. And so that, and to our point before about walking other shoes and, and accepting that two things can be coexisting at the same time, that has to coexist in this world where there's an element of government and NHS support, but there's a role for the private sector. And on Health Tech Pigeon, our other podcast, I, I remember arguing in inverted commas with Jess about this, about the role of the private sector in innovation and where you have a layer of people willing to pay for a new service, they can, for want of a better phrase, for in the interest of time, be guinea pigs through that new process, prove a model, prove an economic model, and end up the public sector can then end up adopting it, knowing that it, the you know the kinks have been ironed out, and there is a process there to improve things in a public health system. Along that journey, it's, you might lose certain things along the way that perhaps people paid for that, that weren't good. So the part, you know, the everybody benefits over time. So again, these are all utopian hypotheticals, but how do you square it in your mind with uh, your desire for increasing access, uh, a government system that can only do so much, the private sector? How do you square all of this in your mind? Like what's actually going on with the way that you're thinking about this new business and there's a bit of a garbled question, um, but I think, you know, I hope you know where I'm sort of going with this. I'm just interested in your thoughts. Fertility Mapper is essentially going to be a data business. That's kind of really what I'm interested in. And how I'm starting is with the review site for fertility clinics. Um, and I've kind of set it up across three kind of key there are three really important metrics that or points that people look for so cost um experience and then outcomes um and because it's a predominantly let's just for ease let's just say it's a private market essentially mm -hmm. um getting hold of those that information is pretty pretty tricky there's a lot of it's either difficult to come by or there's a lot of misinformation so it means that people are kind of making decisions in the dark um, and so the starting point for me was like, okay, how do we start to um, empower people with the right information to make those right decisions? And so looking at the kind of different costs across clinics, um, producing material that explains how the costs work and what they need to kind of think about when they're thinking about these, these costs, comparing them across different clinics and so on. So that was kind of one way that we addressed this initial problem. Then we go to experience. So obviously, Cost is super important in a world in which we're paying for things out of out of pocket, essentially. Um, but also experience is incredibly important to you. Um, and experience is really hard to define. And so I spent quite a bit of time through these interviews working with women and also looking at like, you know, important things like clinic guidelines by the WHO and so on to define experience and so then we create a kind of three metric the four metrics for experience around cost transparency so we'll get to that point in a moment care and respect the joined up seamless experience and communication were the kind of top things that came out and so through the site as we start to generate reviews we're actually going to start to generate a way of defining experience in that market and then finally you get to outcomes now right now we don't include outcomes on the website and the reason is because there's no way that I can get at that data um, and be very confident in the data that I'm reporting on. And so right now the regulator, the HFEA regulates the clinics and they report on the outcomes data. And that is like the safest, you know, refer to the HFEA. And then I feel like we, we're not giving misinformation to anybody that is using the website. And so those are the kind of three key things that we look at. And I kind of saw you respond when you asked, you kind of mentioned cost transparency. So this is where, and this is, I guess, the fundamentals when you learn economics in healthcare is there. So A, we're talking about like asymmetry of information between two actors, the, the patient and the, um, the clinic, essentially, and how that asymmetry of information is driving certain behaviors that may not be beneficial to the patient. But, what, you know, in that kind of situation, what we see is whilst every person who goes through fertility treatment might have a slightly different cost of that treatment because that underlying 
biology is different and therefore the types of medication you need are different and the medication have different prices attached to them and the number of scans you might need look different or the type of scan is different. Um, and so the actual cost is tied to you as a person, your process you're going through. But the important point for you and your relationship with the clinic is are they transparent in that pricing? So do they tell you what's happening up front? Do they do they kind of inform you if you're having a scan, how much that scan will be? Are you clear on your terms and conditions? And so um, there's a kind of thing where we're trying to tackle this asymmetry of information, but we're also realistic that in healthcare, you know, you're not, and not everyone is entering on the same baseline. Everyone is entering on different baselines and therefore you need kind of, you need to be able to kind of measure things in slightly different ways. Yeah. So the hypothesis, if I've got this right, or it's a question, is the hypothesis then that by increasing the quality volume of information around quality experience and these other things that you increase the ability of people to make informed choice and therefore drive up the standards of quality and experience for which cost and cost uh, transparency is all part and therefore increasing access eventually or is that a leap the access thing is not a straightforward one so by driving transparency and cost and making it clear about the experience that people have at certain clinics my mm. hope is that i'm i'm also working with the clinics um and so my as in to help them improve right. the experience they provide right to improve their reviews got it so my hope is that that improves the overall experience of the patient going through that journey and then as costs become more transparent i think one of two things will happen either the clinics will move to a model where they do a kind of lower experience lower price or higher experience higher price like you'll start to see different yeah. things come out of this but at least it will be clear mm. and so that's the kind of order the broader intention. I think on the access point, the only way really to, so this is kind of increasing access to higher quality services. Understood. I think it's probably a good way to think about it or higher experience services for Understood. people. Um, on the actual access, obviously the biggest barrier is going to be the cost. So most people are spending about 8,000 pounds an IVF cycle and they will do on average three cycles. So, People sell their car, they remortgage their home. I mean, they really, once once you have started this process, it is, is very easy to very quickly mm. spend quite a lot of time. And so unfortunately, the only way to improve access is to do something about the cost of that service. And so either you need to work with the clinics to create interventions that enable them to reduce the cost to the consumer in order to increase access, mm. Or you need to create some sort of new financing model that can be support people to pay for pay for those fertility mm -hmm. services. Um, and so I think I'm obviously only out of um, Health Hero for two weeks now, <laughs> early <laughs> on the journey. Um, but naturally, from the review side, there's some like interesting ways that you can start to move in order to improve improve the access that people have. And so for me, for example, when I talk about data, one of the things that's quite interesting, and I'm, I'm sure we have other sort of AI-based companies, and AI is also a slightly cursed term at the moment, um, but uh, if, if you can start to get the data on people starting their fertility treatment, the types of protocols that they're on, and get more selective or predictive or personalized over the protocols that people are on, you might be able to reduce the number of rounds they go through, which will reduce the overall cost. Um, or even reduce the cost of delivering those services uh, by augmenting clinicians with decision support tools. Um, and so therefore, again, might be able to reduce the access price. And so that's kind of some of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about um, in terms of where this could go. I love that. And I, I like that thinking about as well, because you're, you're leaving the optionality there. So I suppose see what you learn along the journey, but accepting the fact that there might be more than one side to this business model, I think that's, yeah, it's 
again, it it's wise seemingly, um, which is what I like about it. What do you think your biggest challenge is going to be in getting to the impact that you want to have? There can be so many. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's true. That's that's true. Um, so what, what, what about even now? Like, what the, with the stage that you're at at the moment, the best ideas are often really simple, right? And yeah. this strikes me as that to some degree. When you talk about the business model, you can see where the complexity lies and you can see where the opportunity yeah. lies. D- the, d- the deep, interesting opportunity around data and AI and prediction and, and decision support. And, you know, even when you talk about working with the clinics as well to increase the, cert, you know, you can start to see like, okay, there's the complexity, which makes it interesting. But it strikes me that, that at its consumer facing end, relatively simple and straightforward like why wouldn't this have happened already you know like that's interesting to me so yeah with the stage that you're at right now why why perhaps is it not what why is this not already here in some capacity i suppose you might tell me that it is but i've made the assumption there that there must be challenges so that's where that's where the question comes from yeah okay good question so yes the last bit is challenging so if we start with where we are now basically um why doesn't it exist today in some ways, it kind of understands, it requires an understanding of the problem. And so, yeah. you know, we've been talking this about yeah. and so on and so on. You kind of have to understand that fertility market is backed by private equity. And then, yeah. therefore, the business model of these things is based on X. Yeah. Um, and then you also have to understand it from the patient perspective, which is actually by picking the right clinic for you, it massively improves your experience. And the amount you'll pay will change. And then potentially with no data whatsoever, theoretically, you know, well, it, it will Im- impact your outcomes. Your I was going to say, clinic. dare I say, improve the success. Yeah. Um, but also, so, you know, you've got to understand it from the patient perspective. But you've also got to understand it from the perspective of the clinics and the businesses that are providing these services. So I think in some ways, the reason that it hasn't happened yet is it kind of requires that, like, understanding of that problem and then the biggest then subsequent hurdle is that you've got to work with both sides of this marketplace and so we've talked a lot about consumer empowerment but also you know i've got to work super closely with clinics um, and build relationships with them in order for this to work and so you've got to disrupt something right now while simultaneously building relationships with both sides. Um, and that bit is going to be the bit that I think will be most challenging over the short term. Mm, it's like you said about breaking it initially, right? Like this, that, that definitely seems to be a part of it because with entrenched establishments and business models and everything set the way it is and working the way it is down that path, yeah, in order to create a new system of value, which is almost what it feels like it's it's like the value that you want for those individuals. The system's not quite optimized for that at the moment. What you're doing is yeah. is breaking it, rebuilding it, but to optimize for value for the individual, as well as, by the way, uh, the right businesses as well. As well yeah. as the, yeah, the it seems like in your system of value that you've created, if you're in it for the right reasons, trying to do the right things for the right people in the right way, then it's an everybody wins scenario. It's just that there's obviously uh, with systems that have run for so long, there's 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 going to be winners and losers in that. I feel, but it, you can, I can see your system thinking. It's nice. <laughs> see the system thinking, but I think the challenge with building a digital business in a healthcare context is that inherently, did like digital or innovation or building tech companies. The ideal is you come across a problem, you build you build a product, you get product market fit, and then you scale it like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> and the challenge in healthcare is that it's just an and I oh my gosh I'm I am now the person that's going to say it, but it's just much more complicated. <laughs> and there's there's just so many entrenched parties and it doesn't it doesn't matter like right now we're kind of figuring out these dynamics around the fertility space and like how do you how do you break something and rebuild it but Mm. also work with incumbent businesses Mm. with certain incentive structures to get them to like understand the value of what you're doing that's true in the fertility market if i was building as i was a health hero something looking at long covid similar challenges right you're trying to do something new and something different 
in a system that's already kind of set up and structured in a very specific way. So I think um, healthcare inherently as a place to build a tech company is is pretty tough because you've got to kind of navigate your way through these things. You're absolutely right. It's inherently challenging for those reasons, but it is also inherently rewarding for much the same reasons. Um, The fact that people are involved (laughs) makes it both incredibly complicated, but also incredibly rewarding. And I think that's one thing that our sector does have going for it in that even, even, you know, we're, we're ancillary to it almost in, in marketing for healthcare companies and comms and PR for, for, healthcare communities but uh, companies but we feel the value of being in healthcare because at the end of the day for recruiting there are all these incredible to your point motivated people that want to do something of meaning that would rather join us than someone more generic or fintech or the rest of it and so it is definitely an element of our sector that that is a double-edged sword. <laughs> that like yeah. we feel we we do yeah. feel quite a lot because the responsibility then comes along with it and, and everything else and and it yeah it, it the complexity. Yeah, but I do think so. You know, obviously, building within healthcare, you can't get that same product market for MS scale. You can in certain things, right? Mm. And actually, part of the reason that fertility is so interesting is because it's an out-of-pocket pay market. Mm. So when I went. I deliberately picked an e-commerce out-of-pocket pay healthcare company. That was a strategic decision. And it was a decision actually on a number of fronts because I was really interested in, again, this idea of quality and experience. Like how do you use tech to improve quality and deliver an amazing experience to the customer? And when when you're building, designing and funding healthcare systems, like bricks and mortar healthcare delivery of mental health services, you're not typically like, optimizing for necessarily like a super desirable experience in what we know as experience in other sectors you're optimizing for safety and outcomes and like a whole host of other things so there was something really interesting in my mind about going to work in a place where if you can't make a product that people want to pay for in the context of a an environment where they get free healthcare then you you're sunk and so actually, what was it about, like, you know, the, it really was the pointy end of getting this idea of product market fit, because people get healthcare for free within their healthcare systems. That's, and like, we're building something that people pay for, why are they paying for it? And so it's this idea of kind of the experience in the user in healthcare. And that's actually, again, in fertility, it's a very similar way of, of thinking about things. But I was going to say, sorry, to your point about, or my point about um, whilst healthcare is difficult and you don't get like immediate product market fit followed by like exponential growth, it's like a slightly weirder journey where there's some lows and some highs and some jumps and a bit of a plateau and then repeat. Um, people need healthcare in a way that they just fundamentally don't necessarily need a lot of other things. And so actually the ability to have an impact, but also build an incredible business in healthcare is is huge and so that's why I think whilst it is difficult you kind of just need the right investors and backers who understand that this might not be the most straightforward journey and and then you're kind of then you've got a good chance of doing something really awesome you're absolutely right and I love that and I think we are getting better aren't we with the money that's that's coming into healthcare I say better obviously during covid there was a heck of a lot of money that flew in um, because it was more fashionable. But actually, parallel and running alongside of that, we are seeing a lot more healthcare specialist investors that are popping up, both in venture. Um, I think Apposite Capital, that's a PE one that's that's healthcare. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, and there's more, obviously, but uh, that one comes to mind. But yes, there's that. With, I think we are getting better at that. And you're right; it does just need a different horizon um, in order to put the the right. Uh, I was going to say pressures on the founder. You don't want to put pressure on anyone, but um, putting the, the the right metrics and and the right timelines. That's the word I was looking for. The right timelines um, for certain things to be achieved. And I think it's metrics and timelines together, isn't it? In healthcare, they're very different to building a. SaaS solution and then just throwing a load of money into marketing and see what happens. Um, yeah. Well, I think the the ambition still has to be huge, right? So the ambition, if you're if you're a founder building a health tech company, the ambition still needs to be huge. 
It has to be for those investors to get involved. Yeah, but also because if you believe what you're doing is improving people's experience, outcomes, whatever the thing is you're trying to approve, then why would you only you want to give it want to, to three people? It. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. You, you and and that again is the and, and and if you don't if you don't think you can make it into a huge business and reach a lot of people, then you should do, then there's probably something else that needs to be kind of worked on. And I I, I and that is where I guess the growth capital aligns with. Mm the ambition to have impact at scale from a human perspective and final question then is that is that what is your ambition i really want to build a global fertility business i mean we haven't really we haven't really talked about kind of i guess we've been talking for ages but we haven't talked about fertility and why it's so interesting we've kind of talked about incentives Mm. and access and all those kind of things but you know fundamentally before fertility was something infertility infertility clinics is what they used to be called mm. it was a place you used to go when you were broken something was wrong we take you to the place we fix it or we don't and then off we go whereas actually what i think about fertility is it's actually it's a huge societal question about i mean i don't know if um you had the economist over christmas it was talking about population growth and that plateauing it's about to plateau in china for the first time um, actually, like how we make our children, who we make our families with, when we make our families is just fundamentally shifting. Um, and so if if the treatment of infertility is going to be part of that picture and that is going to be paid for out of pocket or maybe in the future reimbursed by the state, I want to make sure that what we're doing is is like basically empowering consumers to have you know, the best experience and outcomes they can in a market that's growing and a fundamental kind of linchpin of of, of one of the, the most important things um, that we're going to be thinking about as, as a society over the next 10 to 20 years. Such a good point and one that I had not actually thought about that actually there is infertility and there is fertility. There is ill health and there is health, i.e. optimising health, and actually it mirrors that to a degree in that when you think about ill health you go and get something fixed however you also choose to optimize your own health and put your hand in your pocket to do certain things with gym memberships and clean eating and fitness trackers and you know all of the above right like you might have you might get thriver to do your bloods you might get you know all these different things that you might have a genetic test, you might epigenetics, you might do this, that, the other. Like, there's loads that we do to optimize our own health. And actually, you're right. And the way that facility may be thought about in the future is that, you know, women that have this fertility or, or, or fertile window, perhaps even that will be thought about completely differently in future, that that isn't the right age to have uh children or whatever it is or the choice even to go beyond that there's there's so much that might change uh, and there needs to be a framework that aligns with that or at least has the ability to shift with our you know differentiating view of what fertility is it's just interesting that sparked a load of thoughts um in my mind actually about even just just, it's really challenged my own view of what fertility even is (laughs) It's, and it's like, it's also, and I guess a, a kind of, again, when you talk about treatment of infertility, you're typically talking about heterosexual couples. Yeah. Actually, what I'm talking about is family building. Yeah. So, you know, women who decide to have children by themselves or to freeze their eggs, mm. um, same-sex female couples who decide they want a family. Um, you know, there's there's lots of different ways to think about building a family. And I think in some ways having that idea that sense of the fertility market segment sector as as an as a, like a societal pillar um, rather than a health like specifically thinking about it as healthcare um, means that actually you start to think about family building in a very different way um, and I think that's really good for people who have struggled with their fertility because when you talk about fertility in the context of treating something that is broken there's a whole world of stigma and shame that mm. people feel and they shouldn't, but obviously 
they do. Um, and so by talking about fertility and family building in a much broader context of just like this whole thing is shifting and you're one part of that bigger picture, I think in some ways starts to destigmatize this discussion of, of fertility and sickness or something needing to be fixed. Kaylee, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. It's, honestly, it sparked so many so many thoughts in me and, and challenged me to think about some fundamentally held beliefs that I had, which is always great. I think what you're doing sounds incredible. The experience that you've got led you has obviously led you to where you are with this incredible view of the space and incredible knowledge and sight of of how this business should be built. It's going to be pretty interesting and exciting to uh, to watch your journey from this point. And as I say, it's it's just been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I'd, I'd love to get you back on to talk some more about this stuff because I realise we've been going for like over an hour, and I I just I know. The time. <laughs> If uh, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more about you or what you're doing at Fertility Mapper, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? Email address, which is Kaylee at Fertility Mapper, or you can find me on LinkedIn and just send me a note and say you heard me on this podcast. Amazing. Uh, Kaylee, thank you so much. We will speak very soon. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.